Let me ask you a question. Do you still have a sense of wonder when it comes to Christmas? I think that as we become adults, we tend to lose that sense of wonder around Christmas time. And I realized that when I had kids. When our kids were between the ages of like four to nine, ten, it was awesome to see how excited they got about Christmas, how much wonder they had about it. And it wasn't just about getting a gift and opening it on Christmas Day. It was about everything. It was about putting up the tree. It was about decorating the cookies. It was about hanging the stockings. It was about going to grandma and grandpa's for dinner. It was even cool to see them get excited about getting in the car and touring around Langley to look at lights and drink some hot chocolate. It was then when I realized that my sense of wonder returned as I watched my kids experience the wonder of Christmas through their own eyes. They refreshed my sense of wonder. You see, wonder is such a fragile thing. It can be so easily destroyed. It can be so easily lost. There's so many things that impact us that cause wonder to leave our lives. Things like assumptions or ignorance or hopelessness or even familiarity. Like when we uh, experience something new, we get excited about it. It becomes alive to us. And yet the longer we experience it, the more familiar we become with it, the wonder gets lost. I mean, we experience this every year at Christmas, don't we? Especially when we have kids. You give a child a new present, they open it up, they get excited, they play with it for like a week straight, and then week two, they've forgotten what they got for Christmas. They've lost the excitement, the wonder of exploring that gift. It's become familiar. But our assumptions can also kill wonder in our lives. When we think we have everything figured out, that's the moment when we lose wonder because wonder thrives in the unexplained. It thrives in uh, the times when we don't have the answers, when there's things that might be impossible for us to understand. That's when wonder thrives. But we can also lose wonder in our ignorance because we don't know what we don't know. Like we might assume we know the full story, but if there's a bigger story, if we don't know it, we don't know it. We, we lose out on the wonder of the bigger story. Or maybe we've thought we've explored something, but just around the corner, there's something even more exciting, more wonderful. Like if you're on a, be a long walk at a beach and you come to the end and you go, oh, that was awesome. But you don't realize that if you'd just gone around the corner, there'd be this amazing sight to see. Our ignorance causes wonder to stop inside of us. That ignorance stops us from exploring, digging, searching out even more. And then, of course, hopelessness. Hopelessness is a killer of wonder because wonder thrives on possibility. It thrives on the what-if questions of the what-could-be questions, and hopelessness steals all of that from us. Hopelessness always believes that the light at the end of the tunnel is always a train. It's never a way out. And if you live in that kind of setting, if you live with that kind of mindset, it's really hard to discover wonder in our life. You see, wonder thrives on surprises. It thrives on curiosity. It thrives on mystery. It's about the journey. It's about the discovering and living with the, ten the tension of the unknown, which is interesting because for some reason, wonder and Christmas have been linked together for so long. They're supposed to go together. Advertisers, advertisers use wonder to try and sell us 
more stuff. The makers of Hallmark movies also use wonder to try and steer their storylines and add impact to what they're trying to tell us and show us. Have you ever stopped to wonder why wonder and Christmas have been linked together so much? Does the wonder of Christmas come from that jolly old guy whose belly jiggles and dresses up in red and delivers presents to people? Or is it wonder derived from the girl getting the guy at the end of the movie and giving him a kiss? Or is there some other more ancient connection that links wonder and Christmas together? Over the past three weeks, I have been helping our church re-examine the stories that have led up and lead up to the sacred Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. And we have looked at a number of things, but we've looked at how God can surprise us and, re and ignite wonder in our lives. We've looked at how curiosity inspires wonder in our life. We've even looked at how mystery helps us with wonder in our life, helps it to grow. I wanna share with you the sacred Christmas story in our time together. And I do so believing that if you are willing to set aside your assumptions of what you think Christmas is, if you are willing to open your eyes and look at a story that you may be f quite familiar with, to look at it with new eyes, if you are willing to consider that even the impossible might happen, I think you will experience the wonder of Christmas as God intends you to experience it. You can find this sacred Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and it's verses 1 to 21. So let me just share with you what the Bible says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, for he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married with, to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid because I have good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary 
treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which had just been what they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time for the child to be circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. There is so much in that story that is amazing. I mean, you can tell that everyone who's a part of it is full of wonder. You have the shepherds, the angels, uh, you have the people that the shepherds share this story with that are just amazed. Scripture tells us that. Mary takes everything she experiences and, and puts it in her heart to ponder it and is amazed by the experience. But I wouldn't fault you if your sense of wonder is somewhat diminished with this story, especially if this is a story you have heard over and over again. I have been a pastor for almost 20 years now, and that means that for 20 Christmases, I have had to put Christmas messages together. Let me tell you, it's not the easiest thing sometimes, because here's the thing, the story doesn't change. It is the same story every year. It's not like I get a new story to tell you every Christmas. It's the same one over and over and over again. And so this year I was thinking, okay, God, how do I get excited about Christmas? Because if I can't get excited about Christmas, how am I going to get our people of the South Ridge to get excited about Christmas? And so I prayed and I said, God, you got to get me excited about Christmas. And this is what God did. He gave me a question. I don't know how many times you maybe have read the story of Jesus' birth and wondered about things. This time around, I looked at a phrase that suddenly stood out to me for the very first time. I don't think I've ever really thought about this phrase all that much. And it's the phrase about Mary wrapping Jesus in cloth and placing him in the manger. Why did the angel and why did Luke, the author, why were they so specific about those two things, about describing about how Mary took care of Jesus? I, okay, I, I can understand about the manger. I mean, uh, the angels are sending the shepherds off to find Jesus, and hey, the manger's a great clue. Like, find the baby in the manger, then you'll know it's Jesus. But why would they talk about the, Jesus being wrapped in the cloth? I mean, wouldn't all mothers wrap their babies in cloth? Like once they're born, cleaned up, you wrap them in cloth so that they stay warm, they're protected. Isn't that the natural thing to do? Why would that be included in the story? And as I was thinking about that, another question came to mind. And it was the question of why did God announce the birth to the shepherds? Why of them of all people? Now, that's not a new question. I've thought about it before. Um, I've thought maybe it was because he knew they'd be receptive to the announcement, and that they would go and check it out. Or maybe you've heard the thoughts that he announced it to the shepherds because he wanted to make sure that the message of a savior being born was a message for everyone. And the shepherds were kind of seen as more of the lower stratosphere of society. They were on the lower rung of things. And so in saying, hey, the Messiah has been born to the shepherds, God is saying, hey, salvation is open to anyone. But is there more to that? Is there another reason he would come to the shepherds? And as I was thinking about it, I really thought, how did the shepherds really know where to go? 
I mean, Bethlehem's not a big city. It's a small town, but there was still, they estimate a couple hundred people there at least, maybe even more than that. And a clue about a manger, a baby in a manger, sure, that's specific. But there was more than one manger in Bethlehem. I'm pretty sure almost every house that had livestock had a manger. So really, how helpful is that? How does that help them find where Jesus is? Little would I know that all three questions would actually come together and be connected as I was trying to figure out these, the answers to these questions. I came across a fellow named Alfred Edersheim, who uh, was a Jewish convert to Christianity in the 19th century. He, came, he had the same questions that I had, and he took the time to actually figure out maybe some answers. And so I want to share that with you today. Bethlehem is a rural community, and it sits about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And even today, when you go to Bethlehem and you see Bethlehem proper, you will see it's surrounded with hills that are, for the most part, barren. They're empty. They don't have stuff built on it. And these fields are known as the shepherd's fields, just like they were known as the shepherd fields back in Jesus' day. And you see, the interesting thing uh, that you don't see right away in the passage is this. In Jesus' day, there kind of was like a, a decree from the Jewish Talmud, which kind of gave the Jews an operating system of how to live their lives outside of the Bible, in addition to the Bible. And one of the things they talked about in there is that all the lambs that were to be sacrificed at the temple had to be born and raised within a five-mile radius of Jerusalem. And so these hills outside of Bethlehem had flocks on them because this is where the temple you know, flocks were raised. These sheep were raised so that they could be sacrificed every day and especially during Passover by the Jews at the temple. And so there was a number of sacrificial flocks. And so as you think about that, think about this. What if the angel came to the shepherds and the shepherds weren't your ordinary shepherds? They were, in fact, the priestly shepherds. For you see, the sacrificial flocks had to be watched over, had to be led by, had to be kind of guarded by shepherds who knew the regulations of what the sheep needed to go through in order to be sacrifices. And so there were priestly shepherds who watched over the flock. Now, of course, this is speculation, and easily it could be a what if that isn't real. But when you start to think of a uh, a relatively minor and not well-known prophecy in Micah, things start to clear up a little bit, and the what-ifs become more possible. You see, part of the sacred Christmas story, the intriguing parts of it, at least for me, is, and we've looked over at that over the last couple weeks, is how much prophecy plays out in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And Jesus' birth and the events leading up to his birth and, and events after his birth fulfill a number of prophecies in the Old Testament, prophecies made by prophets several hundred years before Jesus is even born. And Micah is one of these prophets. One of Micah's most well-known prophecies comes from Micah 5.2, 
where it says that the future king, the future Messiah of Israel would be born in Bethlehem. And that's the prophecy that the, the Magi come to learn when they enter into Jerusalem looking for the newborn king. And they get told that, well, that newborn king is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem uh, probably a year or two after Jesus is born and find Jesus there. But that's where that prophecy comes from, Micah 5.2. But there is another prophecy in Micah, and it's found in chapter 4, and it's verse 8. And it simply says this, As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now reading that, you go, Brent, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But here's two things I would love to point out to you about it. The term watchtower of the flock is really two Jewish words. And those two Jewish words are migdal eder, which literally mean tower of the flock. And during Jesus' day, one of the presumptions of this prophecy was this. They, the Jews believed that at Migdal Eder, that is where the Messiah would be announced to the nation. His first proclamation that he was the Messiah would be announced there. A few years ago, uh, archaeologists actually found the ruins of Migdal Eder. And they found that it was a two-story watchtower. And these ruins were located about a mile outside of Bethlehem, which would put it in, within the five-mile range of Jerusalem. This tower, consisting of two stories, this top story would be a, a place for the, the priestly shepherds to watch the flocks at night and during the day to make sure that you know, beasts weren't coming to eat them, make sure the flocks weren't getting lost. But for the Christmas story, what's more intriguing is what the first floor was used for. You see, the first floor was used for when the sheep were pregnant and about to give birth. They would be brought into the protective first floor where the sheep would then give birth to the lambs. And once the lamb was birthed, the priestly shepherds would take this lamb and place it in the manger. And once in the manger, they would inspect the sheep. They would inspect that lamb for blemishes. And if they found anyone, any blemishes, then that lamb would just be put into the ordinary flock. But if there was no blemishes, nothing wrong, if it was a perfect lamb, it was then set aside to become a sacrificial lamb. And what they would do, it was they would take a piece of cloth and wrap that lamb up in the cloth. And by doing so, they would protect the lamb from future cuts and bruises and scrapes that might cause blemishes and make it unworthy to be a sacrificial lamb. And so in the bottom of Migdal Eder, in that first floor, what you had happening with lambs being born is that these lambs were wrapped and placed and laid in a manger and they were certified to be worthy to be Passover sacrifices. The what-ifs of this imagery just blow my mind. Like my wonder meter is off the charts with this thought. So what if God announced to the priestly shepherds through the angel that the child wrapped in cloth and lying in the manger, they were told that so they knew exactly where Jesus lay, Migdal Eder. They didn't have to search out Bethlehem. They knew exactly where to go. What if God announced to the priestly shepherds the arrival of his son, the Savior, the Messiah, 
so that they could go and see him and certify that he was the sacrificial Messiah. The Messiah wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. What if the reason that the people were so amazed at what the shepherds said to them was, had less to do with the whole event with the angel, but had more to do with the fact that the shepherds who would know the prophecy were telling them that Micah 4.8 was fulfilled that night and the Messiah had come. What if the shepherds were announcing the Messiah just like the angel was announcing the Messiah? What do you do with that? What do you do with this? I realize that Jesus may not have been born at Migdal Eder. He may not have. But I wouldn't put it past God to arrange it that way. I wouldn't put it past God to insert this small little detail in his gospel that tells us about the Savior, about the Messiah. That if we just spend enough time looking at it, if we spend enough time digging, that it would create in us a new sense of wonder about his salvation story for us. Here's what I've discovered about wonder. Wonder is life-giving. It is something that brings fullness and color into our life, which is why we so desperately need wonder in our life, especially if we are in a hopeless state, if we're isolated, or even if our life just seems like routine. We need wonder to engage us and bring us back to that place where we can discover something new, discover what God has for us. You see, the wonder of the Christmas story is this, that God has given us the good news that he sent his son Jesus to be our sacrifice. Jesus, in essence, is waiting for a response from you. Just like he was waiting for the shepherds to show up that night. He is waiting for you to respond. He is waiting to acknowledge that you would acknowledge that you need him. He's waiting for you to realize that only in him can we find true peace, true joy. Only in him can we find the wonder that deals with our hopelessness. If you've never come to Jesus, if you've maybe never realized the amazing wonder of the Christmas story, the amazing wonder that Jesus came as our Savior, I ask you to consider it now. I ask you to, to, to wonder what your life could be like with Jesus. What it would be like if you discovered what he has for you. If that's you and you're listening to this, I encourage you to jump onto the chat. We have a number of volunteers who would love to talk to you about what li your life could look like with Jesus as the central part of it. They would love to be able to share how you can come and accept the Savior that was born 2,000 years ago. That little baby Jesus, who was wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger, was born for the sole purpose to be a sacrifice for you and for me. This is the story that is full of wonder. This is the story that never gets old in the retelling. This is the story that we tell every Christmas 
because it is so wonderful. My prayer is, is that you can discover the wonder of that story this Christmas. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. God, thank you for giving me that question. Thank you for allowing me the time to explore it. Thank you for allowing me the ability to share it with those who are watching and listening. My prayer, God, is that though everyone who's listening would be full of wonder for what you have done for them. And my prayer is especially for those who maybe have never come to you before, that they would come this Christmas and open their heart to you and be saved by you, their Savior. Lord, help us to enter into this Christmas full of wonder. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to end the service by singing Silent Night like we do almost every Christmas Eve. And so I want you to join with us in singing. If you haven't got your candles out, if you haven't lit them, light them now. Turn off the house lights. Make some real atmosphere. And enjoy Silent Night with us. And then at the end of the service, this is what I encourage you to do. Think about this question. Where do you find wonder in Christmas this year?